Yep, it's March. Oh my god, it's March. <laughs> I it's... feel like every episode begins with no, that's some true. version of. But you know, time doesn't quite operate the same way these days as it used to in the past, I feel. Okay, <laughs> please right? elaborate. It's also the fact that it is week seven of the semester for me. It has been a really tiring semester. I mean, it's not just me. Yesterday I had an event with the grad students and everyone I spoke to, and I spoke to quite a few people, we all agree that this semester has just been more exhausting than before. I mean, it's Why probably several think, reasons, right? Yeah. Why is that? We are coming, you know, more fully back into full in-person operations. Mm-hmm. New Mexico State has completely removed all mask re- wearing requirements. But okay. the university is still maintaining indoor masking, which is good. Mm-hmm. Right? Also, because it's a spring semester, my suspicion is that there are a lot of students who want to graduate this semester. Yeah, of course. Yes. And so they probably are taking classes that they need to take in order to graduate, mm-hmm. fulfilling final distributional requirements. Yeah. And some of them have been quite pushy with, I need help because I need to pass so I can graduate. Right. Angle. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which is fair, right? And, yeah. you know, we're all trying to do our best to help the undergrads. And that is just, I think, taking its toll on everybody. Right. So I'm curious, I mean, from a teaching perspective, right? Is this preferable? Okay. The situation that you describe where students are engaged, pushy, highly interested Invested, maybe invested. Okay, where where students are invested in passing versus students don't care, which is preferable is maybe just is too simplistic of an axis. But I think as an educator, what are the differences? Maybe let's just keep it general. Right. No, I mean you have a point, right? And as an educator, I really am excited that my students are interested. Obviously, this. I mean, interest is also a very simplistic sort of, you know, point parameter to sort of quantify this, right? Because investment in the course can translate to several different kinds of behavior. Yes. There are the students who ask for help and Mm -hmm. are genuinely interested in learning. Then there are the students who ask for help only because they're trying to get better grades. Yeah. And they don't really care whether they're learning anything. They just want grades. Right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. But let's leave that aside for one minute, right? Mm -hmm. Even disregarding sort of the very small handful of students who are, let's just say, not in it for the right reason, Mm -hmm. right? By and large, it's really good to see that students are really getting into the material, really excited by the material to some Mm -hmm. extent, or at least trying their best to understand the material and to make the most of this 13-week course. Now, where I think the issue becomes difficult is that grad students are not just educators. Mm, yes, of course. We don't solely wear an educator hat, right? Yep. We have to do research, we have to write our own grants, we have to do all kinds of rubbish. And piling that on makes it really challenging to right. manage the situation. Yeah. Right. How many hours a week, if you can quantify it that way, goes to teaching? I mean, research, I'm assuming, is the base of what you do, right? And then teaching is meant to be either a small part of that or a supplementary to that. Well, but this is the thing, right? In the US in grad school, your teaching is what pays your salary. Yes. Ah, right? So yes. I'm paid 
20 hours a week. So I'm expected okay. to work 20 hours a week. It usually takes me at least one full day to grade the entire class's work. So that's about 10-ish hours. Mm-hmm. And then there's also dealing with students, answering questions, emails. So that fills up the rest of the 20 hours, essentially. Interesting. Okay. Right. I mean, I feel like I'm relatively privileged because I don't have to actually physically teach in person. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do lectures. I don't have to do labs or practicals. But regardless, and so, you know, I think in a sense, it maybe isn't, I'm whining a bit because, <laughs> you know, my teaching load isn't necessarily as bad as people who have to do in-person activity. But I'm grading essays every week. I think this was going to be my next question. Is your class hybrid now or in-person? It's technically in-person, but it's designed to be hybrid. Okay. Because sometimes we have students from out of state Right. Taking the course. We have students, not just from out of state, but in a completely different city because we have uh, Last Christmas, no, no, not Last Christmas, Rio Rancho branch. I think we have a branch in Taos as well. And I think there's some students right. up in the other New Mexico cities that are taking the course. Every lecture is posted online. All the assignments are online. I don't actually physically have to see students. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, it's possible for the students to do the course completely remotely. Okay, now I have a, a different range of questions. But yeah, no, my original question was going to be like, how much do you think that greater emphasis on in-person is impacting like student engagement? Like, are, are students well, more I mean, invested because more of them are attending in person? Maybe for some courses, I'm not so, so sure about my, I mean, to be fair, the students that show up for class, and I do attend lectures once in a while, which mm-hmm. adds to my time, right? are really interested. They're asking Mm. questions. You know, I have at least one student who has volunteered for field work, which is incredible, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's good to see sort of the range of responses to the course. And and it does seem that, yeah, students are quite excited by the material when it's in person, especially when they can see a professor face-to-face and and talk about stuff after the class is over. Right. Okay. So the Next question that I have, right, is like you mentioned that it's designed to be hybrid so that it's possible to do it completely remotely, right? So what is the ver differential, if there is any, between students who are doing it completely remotely and students who are able to attend in person? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know because, you know, it's opaque to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> when I read the assignments that are posted online, they don't tell me whether they show up or not. And right. Yeah. So right, I, right. I don't have any means of assessing this. Right. That's, I mean, the part of the reason that I'm asking, right, is that obviously I'm in a completely remote program, right? But after I'm done with this school, I'm considering continuing to study because I am a bit of a masochist. Um, <laughs> and one, one of the programs that I'm considering is a hybrid program. So it's, it's designed right. from the scratch to be hybrid, right? They've been hybrid from the very beginning. It's not imposed by COVID and they've been doing it for over 15 years now. So they have right. quite a bit of experience with running this type of program. But I was wondering about like the difference in experiences and the difference in outcomes. Is it, I think this is a question that we have to figure out in this, well, probably in this decade, to be honest, but definitely in this century, right? How do you equalize teaching outcomes for in-person mm. and remote students? Because it's not going to, remote learning is not going to end with COVID. Right. But the challenge, of course, with sort of trying to suss out at least the, the difference between, you know, learning outcomes for in-person versus remote students also is, you know, that there are tons of confounding factors. Yes, Yes. Right. A lot of them are correlated as well. So for example, students that tend to show up in person could mm-hmm. either be more interested in the course, potentially, yes. right? And therefore they want more face time with the instructor. Yep. 
or it could be that you know they, they're they in full-time physically, students. Yeah, right. They're not working. Yep. Right. To be fair, many of my students work, but there is also this gradation of work. Right. Some of these yes. are adults who are still working. Mm-hmm. Right. There are those who are working out of state and therefore have to do the course remotely. Yeah. There are those who are working part time at you know McDonald's, Whataburger, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So the amount of time students have to even devote to coming to class in person varies a lot. And of course, you know, with COVID, right, it really brings into stark contrast the mention of health. Mm, right? yes. Not everyone can be healthy enough to come to class. Some students are sick. Some students have chronic illnesses that make them sicker more often than yeah. not. And some of them have parent parental obligations. Mm-hmm. Some of them have childcare obligations as well. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is going to be very complex to work out. I mean, to be fair, we, you know, it's about bloody time we started thinking about this. But yeah, there are so many factors associated with this. So when we designed this, well, I mean, I wasn't part of the course design, but from what I know of how this course was thought up, when this course was designed, right, the whole idea was to, number one, address a big gap in the biology curriculum. Okay. Which is a different story. The biology curriculum here is a bit messy. This is um, ecology, right? Biodiversity. Biodiversity, okay. Mm, ecology, I think, is a second-year course here. Okay. In Singapore, it's also a second-year course. Yeah. But biodiversity here is technically a first-year course. And, you know, there is a constant need always for these sort of broad-scale first-year courses, not just mm-hmm. for first-year students who need to clear a distribution, yeah. but also for non-majors who need to clear a distribution as well. And the other thing also is that we do this also because we want to try to find students who are interested in biodiversity. Unfortunately, yeah. unlike Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan, we're not really a college with a strong undergraduate wildlife biology program. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not in the sense that we don't have a strong program, but in that we don't have a sort of a major reputation as being one of the, mm-hmm. the big wildlife biology programs. So a lot of the applicants we get coming into the biology program are not interested in as much as other students in wildlife ecology, yeah. biodiversity, right? Compared to, say, again, LSU, KU, Michigan, Berkeley, right? Mm-hmm. So we need a course that sort of introduces students yeah to biodiversity to try and hook the ones that maybe have some marginal interest to get them addicted to biodiversity essentially. (laughs) How well does that work? I mean, you really can see which students are the ones who potentially are considering a future in biodiversity. Okay. Right. But the other thing also is that, you know, you really want to give non-biodiversity students at least some kind of grounding Mm. in looking at the world around them. So that second part, I don't know how successful I am. But regardless, you know, we have to try. And this is the same rationale in Singapore as well, at NUS, yeah. right? It's that most of the undergrads we get coming in, in the biology program, are, I mean, not pre-med, but, you know, they don't want to be wildlife scientists. Yeah. Fair, right? But the baseline knowledge coming in is really, really low. So there needs to be some sort of, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I've not, my own college experience is very specific, right? So I haven't really had that experience of being in a 101 class that has to cover like a lot of ground, right? Because I mean, as a film major, from the beginning, you take film foundational classes and Mm -hmm. they are directed at film majors, right? They are not open to non-majors. Because this is a non-vocational course. Yeah. Then when I enrolled in the Spanish department, again, you take a placement test, right? So, Mm -hmm. and with foreign languages, it's also a different situation because people are just fulfilling distribution requirements and the majors generally enter at a higher level anyway because they have prior experience from high school or whatever. Yeah. So you already have that separation. Linguistics. This is interesting because my experience with the linguistics 
department at NYU is your typical liberal arts experience where you mm. have distribution requirements. So you mm-hmm. have to take a class, right, to fulfill this requirement. And yep. then in my case, it became a minor because mm. that first class was sufficiently engaging and I don't know, mind broadening, eye opening, pick whatever cliche you want. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So in that way, I had that experience, but the where it differs was that I did not have that experience through a first year one on one course. Mm. I got that experience through an elective that had no prerequisites. Right. Right. I think this so, is this is something that, that we see a lot of in, yeah. in for some reason in the sciences because you know the especially for environmental biology because mm-hmm. the baseline knowledge is really lacking because you know it's very poorly taught at the pre-university level mm. right right and so this is the situation we find ourselves in and you know it's interesting to see sort of the similarities between here and Singapore yeah, yeah very very stark the thing that the, the one class actually that I, in my mind is I don't know if comparable is the word because in so many other ways it's unusual. But the class that comes to mind is actually CS50, mm, right? That right. is taught at Harvard because that is, firstly, is a huge class. I think it's like yeah. 600, 700. It's, I cannot it's imagine teaching a 600 person I mean, class. if you think about it, right? The, the professor, David Malan, he's basically running his own small organization within the greater organization because yeah. he has I mean he there is him right there are all the technical ops people who have to help to set up for the class because it is already so technically demanding there, are, there he has an army of TAs right and yep. then there is of course the pedagogical element but there's a huge logistical element that's you actually need a decent amount of general management skill just to yeah. make this class happen I mean anything over 100 people you know, yeah. plus labs, you're yeah. going to need logistical support. Correct. Because, holy shit. <laughs> Correct. And I mean, so of course he teaches and he does the day-to-day running of the class and he's mm-hmm. primarily a professor of practice, mm-hmm. but he publishes also. <laughs> right. So, he's he's just like, oh my God. I, I don't know. I don't know. Some people are crazy. But the thing about that class, right, is that it is a class that has to fulfill the needs of majors so yep. downstream classes, they have, you know, they're going to have come to him and say, hey, are our students prepared to take 102, 201, 202? There are going to be students who will never take another comp science course in their lives. Yep. Right. And you somehow have to make it engaging for everybody. And there are actually a large number of students who take the class, I guess you can say in a hybrid fashion, because it's actually offered to Yale students as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm still partly connected to the Yale ecosystem and I often hear undergrads bitching about CS1. Uh, <laughs> CS yeah. <laughs> so there are like all these considerations and mm-hmm. somehow you have to design a course that is able to meet the needs, right, of all these students. I mean, I think though this is the general problem for all 101 courses. Because same in any university, you have to meet the requirements, the baseline knowledge requirements of the majors who yeah. will maybe have some level of interest. You have to cater to the non-majors for whom this will be the last ever time yes. they engage with this topic. And then you also want to engage with those who may potentially shift yeah. towards this topic. It's so it's a, three different directions. It's really right? difficult. 
here it is a big class and it's a lot of content right because you're going through essentially the foundations of the entire field mm. in my topic I have to teach everything from bacteria to mammals <laughs> all of life not just that yeah. all of time mm, yeah right yeah. because yeah. we have to go through you know the Ecdysozoa and the Cambrian the Devonian all the way to essentially the Holocene and the, mm. uh, the Anthropocene which is a lot yeah <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, um, the way that CS50 does it, and I think this is not unique to CS50. I think a lot of classes or courses that position themselves at the intro-ish level, right, have this pattern now, which is they have the homework assignments, right? There are two mm-hmm. kind of parallel paths. So CS50 calls it less comfortable and more comfortable, right? <laughs> so like, how comfortable are you with the material if you are less comfortable you do the less comfortable set of assignments. And if you're more comfortable, you do the more comfortable set of assignments. And those, of course, will be more challenging. And that's aimed at students who are, they come in with, you know, like AP computer science or something like that. And they can jump straight to more challenging work, right? Conceptually, the set of concepts that you have to cover is the same. It's just that one assignment is intended for students who have never seen this before. And one set of assignments is intended for students who have. I've all never encountered confident. this before, but okay, yeah. this is an interesting so, concept. Um, that is for CS50. For Okay, so this is a completely different context now, but Levagon, right? The boot camp mm-hmm. that I attended. They have something similar. They have required exercises and optional exercises. So mm. the idea is if you have sufficient prior experience that the required exercises are not challenging, then you're always welcome to do the optionals. And right. the optionals get really hard. I think I would say they are they're at a point where if you are doing it full-time and mm-hmm. you are a beginner, right, the optionals are essentially out of reach, right? Huh. I think some of the optionals are really only doable if you have either your part-time and you can actually devote more than eight hours mm-hmm. per lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have some prior comm science background or some prior software engineering background that you can pull in because it starts to deal with more advanced topics. I think like in week three or four, there is some meta programming exercise kind of thing going on. I mean, you can have the tracks, right? And that maybe keeps student engagement there, but you still have the challenge that your less comfortable track, the required track, still has to be sufficiently preparatory, right? Because then you go into the 102 classes and now everybody is a major or a minor, but not everybody has done the more comfortable track. Right. Right? Well, this is interesting. I've never actually seen this in biology before. I don't know whether this is a unique thing to a lot of the computer science courses. I suspect you know, also it partly just It's a lot of work to offer multiple tiers of assignments. Yes, yes. It's a lot of work. And I right? think for comm science, it's really only doable because there is the possibility of auto-grading. Well, not just that, but there is the other thing as well. For CS50 mm-hmm. and the Vargon, there is some infrastructure in place for stability. Right, and CS50 is just one guy who's keeping track of all the course material and designing all the course material. Levagon, there is there is an institution behind sort of maintaining the quality of this. Yeah, but for yeah. most of the courses, right? But for most of the courses, it's the instructor, the individual instructor who may not be teaching this constantly throughout. Because especially for undergraduate courses, first year courses especially, instructors rotate. Mm, yes, because it's seen as basic stuff that. 
almost any instructor, especially younger faculty or junior faculty, yes. are expected to take on as part of the yeah. teaching duties. Right? You can see how, you know, a lot of times it's individual instructors who have to make stuff up, you know, a few months before the, the semester starts. And so there is not so much time to have to think about, you know, tiered assignments because that is a lot of preparation. Yeah, so you're absolutely right that this that there is for both of these methods of teaching, right? I mean, it's essentially one method. Both of these institutions, I guess, right? There is a whole infrastructure in place that is really set up. It's basically a small company's worth of work, Yeah. right? There is a... I just put this in the show notes. So I guess you can say I found this guy on Reddit. <laughs> basically, <laughs> I just... I saw him floating around a couple of subreddits. Not a couple, I think just one actually. And then... I found out that he has this site. So this guy teaches what he calls CS1, but this is essentially CS101 at UIUC. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, at University of Illinois. And it is a very similar situation. There is a whole huge infrastructure set up. You're looking at a similar number, I think like 700 students per semester. He has numbers, I think, on his... Okay, it doesn't really say. You have to go and hunt for it. But... I think there he has an essay called Quantifying CS1. Okay. And this is more about how do you measure student success? Right. But it doesn't say, okay, how many students succeed? No, that's not a number. But yeah, it's really interesting actually because he talks about, he's a teaching professor. Right. Right, like right. his primary job is to figure out how to deliver education. But he has, of course, the thoughtfulness of a research professor because, you know, he has gone through the whole PhD rigmarole, right? So if you look at his essays, he's put a lot of thought into how to structure his courses. And he has a post, he has an essay actually called Poorly Structured, which I'm going to put here. And of course, Uh this is the kind of thing that you can, I guess, expect that will come out of somebody whose primary job is teaching. And who has the headspace, right, to just devote all his time to like, how do I teach this course? Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. not everybody, right? And of course, who has the resources as well to implement whatever he comes up with or any experiments that he wants to run. So his argument actually, and this is, again, you can argue that it's specific to computer science. His argument is that in high school, right, there is a lot of close supervision of how students are doing Mm. for better or for worse, right? A lot of people will say that's for worse. They need to become more independent, blah, blah, blah. Then you go to college and from the very beginning, you're thrown into humongous classes, very little individual oversight. You need to be independent and stay on top of how well you're doing. If you need help, you need to go and approach the instructional team. They won't necessarily come to you and offer to help and stuff like that, right? And he is saying that, yes, we may expect college students to be more independent, but you can't reasonably expect this transition to happen immediately. You're right. right? Yeah. Especially yeah. with all the other things that go on when you're going to college for the first time, right? Like you have no clue how to, I mean, you're also all of a sudden being like, I have to cook, I have to do my laundry, I have to like clean my room, whatever <laughs> it is that 18 year olds suddenly have to do and then on top of that you no longer have teachers who compulsively check in with you right to make sure you're learning the material 
you know, I've actually started doing that with my students because some of them like submit assignments with the last question, which I'm the one, the question I'm grading, not filled in. I'm like, hello, did you mean to submit this? Right. Without right. finishing the, you know, I'm like, jeez, yeah. please. So what but, no, is, that's fair. what he has done with CS1 at UIUC is interesting. So he changed the structure so that students code every day. Oh, damn. Right. Which again, you can do because especially at that level, almost everything is auto-graded. Yeah. Right. But the idea here is that rather than have some, you know, small number of large assignments, you have a large number of small assignments. Right. And because you are teaching a skill, right, that skill needs to be reinforced constantly. And so this is a course that actually benefits from the high school style of many small continuous assessments and not from the college style of several big assignments. And if you screw up one of them, that's like 20% gone. I mean, we do the same thing actually at university as well, at least in the yeah the earlier courses as well. It's like smaller assessments rather than just one big assessment that's like 50% of your grade and then, you know, a whole bunch of other nonsense. What we do in this course that I'm teaching is we there's like daily extra credit so just a small MCQ question, you fill it up, you get some extra credit, you do everything correctly, you get 10% extra for your grade, which is very generous. It's very generous. A full fucking letter grade. Yep. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I see what you mean. And, you know, this is clearly not something I've, I just something I've thought about, but, you know, it's not something I've specifically trained for. Although given the fact that I've taught a biodiversity-like course, this is my sixth time teaching a biodiversity course mm-hmm. for undergrads, for freshmen specifically. <laughs> and it's my seventh ever course that I've ever taught, I think. Because I co-taught another undergrad-facing course at the university, the formerly known as the University Scholars Program. <laughs> yeah, it is something where you really have to sort of calibrate it to the learning level of the undergrads. The other thing that has cropped up, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again, is that one of the other things, in addition to teaching about all of life, and all of life through time, I have to teach my undergrads how to write. <laughs> and this is not something that's just in New oh Mexico. God. Yeah. Same thing in Singapore as well. Mm. Right? Because the undergrads that tend to come into science courses tend not to be so good with writing. And so yesterday, well, not yesterday, two days ago, I, I spoke to one of the undergrads in the class, one of the undergrads who showed up for in-person lecture. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I said, just out of curiosity, what is the... Because I know that there is a mandatory English credit that all undergrads have to take at UNM. Mm-hmm. So I asked this undergrad, what is this English credit and how is it fulfilled? Right? So this undergrad said, oh, most undergrads will take composition one, which is creative writing. Ah, that's which a problem. Which explains a lot. That's a problem. Why is it done that way though? Right? Why is it not academic writing? You want to prepare your undergrads for four years of academia, of academic training. Why are you not making academic writing mandatory? Yeah, I mean, at NYU, it wasn't called academic writing, although you are expected to do the usual academic. It has to fulfill academic style, basically. But at NYU, it is expository writing. Which okay. fits the, the, which the, fits the requirement, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can see an argument, like, depending on expository writing, academic writing, depending on how you define academic writing, right? Like, is the goal here to write a paper? So, 
I mean, again, the former university scholars program, uh-huh. our writing course was very clearly an academic writing okay. course, right? Three segments of the course or three sub-modules to the module. The first sub-module is deep reading. Mm. Give you one source, yep. tear it apart. Yeah, yeah. Right, deep read. The second sub-module was lensing or comparison. Uh-huh. Okay. I'll give you two sources, compare and contrast, or, you know, lens one argument through another. Yep. Right. And then the third component was more freeform, but compare and contrast and synthesize and deep read multiple sources. Yeah. And the final assignment is usually like a 4,000 word long essay. I cannot remember what they were called, but I feel like Sorry, at NYU. In a sense, mm-hmm. this was actually very similar to the science writing course I did at Yale with Carl Zimmer, which is again very different format. Right, because the writing style of science writing is completely different from academic writing. Yes. You are expected to jettison all the rules of academic writing. But nonetheless, our first assignment, take a scientific paper, write a breakdown in layman's terms. Yeah. Second assignment, do a profile piece mm. of a scientist. Okay. Third assignment, long form. You know, scientific American Net Geo style. Yeah. Article. So the way that structure at NYU is similar. For undergrads, right, they are, the course is called Writing the Essay. And it's implemented slightly differently depending on what major you are and everything. So if you are arts and sciences and you enter without a major, but you are going to be your typical, not the broad middle, right, of college education in a sense. Then you take one Writing the Essay course. If you are in one of the specialized schools, so School of the Arts, Business, I think those two have separate a more specialized writing curriculum, but then I, I don't know about some of the other schools. But the structure of the course is the same. It's just that the materials differ somewhat. Right. It's three assignments and it's a very similar structure to what you described. So I can't remember what they were called. They had fancy names like Deepening and Reckoning and I can't remember like de- oh, Deepening Jesus is first Christ. or Reckoning is first or whatever. And then the third one is uncreatively called writing with sources. So <laughs> the three assignments are like deepening, reckoning, writing with sources. But the first one, right, is there is a series of texts. I can't remember if you actually got to choose one or what. Right. But the first assignment was you're given a text or a range of texts and you choose one. And you essentially, the deepening part of it, right, is you try and explore, right, what it is that this writer is giving to you. So you're deepening your understanding, essentially, of what you're reading. And the second one, Reckoning, is similar, but this time it has a more challenging perspective to it, right? So you are expected to challenge the perspective that the writer is presenting to you. And then the final one, Writing with Sources, is now, okay, you have an argument that... The way that we did it was there is... There's a list of documentaries and then you watch one and then you write. Critically about it. Critically about it, but you're not just, it's not a review, right? You're expected no. to actually have an argument and weave this source into it. Yep. And I think yep. there was a requirement, something like it needs, you need to have like at least X number of external references. Basically, it's like given a bunch of sources and one key subject, how do you form a unique argument? Right. Yeah. So the thing is, the class is explicitly an expository writing class, not an academic writing class. So right. the target, right, the output, the ideal kind of output is something that you might see in the New Yorker or the Atlantic. 
okay, okay. But nonetheless, you are still, you know, and I think this is the common thread across all the writing courses we've talked about so far. The first segment is always about critical thinking. Yes, correct. Right, which I think is very important. And okay, so I'm looking at the Composition 1 course description right now for UNM. Mm-hmm. In this course, students will read, write, and think about a variety of issues and texts, okay? Mm-hmm. They will develop reading and writing skills that will help them with the writing required in their fields of study and other personal and professional contexts. So it's not. So this seems to be sort of really even more basic than most of the writing courses that we talk about. Students Functional Writing to- 101. Yeah, students will learn to analyze rhetorical situations in terms of audience, context, purpose, mediums, and technologies and apply this knowledge to their readings. Oh my god, this is even more basic. This is is essential, but this explains a lot though. This is what you would expect to be taught in high school. High school. That's what I used to teach, actually. They will also gain an understanding of how writing and other modes of communication work together for rhetorical purposes. Students will learn to analyze the rhetorical context of any writing task and compose with purpose, audience, and genre in mind. Yeah, this is it is it is what I used to teach in high school. Yeah. And I'm looking at the English department now. Technical and professional communication is a second year course, a two two one zero course. I mean, te- expository writing is also a second year course. Ah, okay. Expository writing being second year is a bit alarming. I would say technical writing, it's understandable to some degree because depending on what kind of technical writing, what field it is, you do need some kind of underlying expertise usually. Oh but, God, it's actually, technical yeah. writing is aimed at writing correspondence, procedures, resumes, presentations, proposals, and multi-page reports. So it's okay, not no, even that's academic not really, writing. Not oh, really tech- no. It's not what I would call technical writing. Jeez, I mean, what's that functional writing part yeah, two? Advanced functional writing, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that really does go to a great extent to explaining sort of the the writing I receive from my students. I'm getting a lot of writing that sounds like they're writing advertisements or writing, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of very personal voice kind of it's like I don't know what can't think of any good examples off the top of my head but it feels very you know a lot of rhetorical questions rhetorical phrases as well that does not fit within the confines of a, a formal essay right it feels like I'm reading secondary school writing which is really alarming but which makes sense because the composition class is pitched at what I would consider to be a secondary school level yeah yeah probably sec 2 sec 3 writing right not but, even sec yeah. 4 writing yeah correct thereabouts yeah like I would yeah. ex- the sec four students that I taught, I would expect them to know this really. Correct. Right. Because hey, you know, they're going to go to either poly or JC where the writing standard is completely different. Yes, so these correct. kids aren't even at the JC slash poly level of writing, which is alarming. I need to have a word with my boss about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean oh, realistically no. realistically, what do you do, right? Because the thing is, at college, you are the end of an educational pipeline. So if high school is graduating students that do not have, already have these skills, they have to pick it up somewhere. And that's going to be college year one. Well, so essentially, you know, this is why when I say, you know, this course, I'm also an English teacher. <laughs> I'm, I'm an English teacher, essentially, right? And yeah. so I think then that needs to be, I mean, it's good that, you know, the course is designed this way where students have to write like at least one argumentative essay, at least one compare and contrast essay, at least one descriptive essay, which <laughs> if I remember correctly, this is stuff we taught at secondary school, right? Yeah. Compare and contrast. Yeah, Jesus Christ, these are essay genres that we teach to 15-year-olds. Yeah. And, and 14-year-olds, right? But in that vein, it also means that when you develop the course material, you have to develop resources that allow students to grasp this approach. 
So, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this in the past episode, but I actually literally made a writing table for my undergrads so they can write more effective essays. In addition to teaching Peel, which I know every teacher hates, right? I taught I, my students Peel. Uh-huh. I don't necessarily I also, hate it, but go on. Okay. I mean, it leads to very formulaic essays, but, you know, it works, right? For structuring arguments. In addition to teaching my students the PEEL approach, I also literally made a Word document where I had a table, well, one table with introduction and then a blank box. And then, mm. you know, I said, okay, the introduction is meant to be da 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 It's meant to introduce your argument. It's meant to, for you to lay out the scope of your argument, da 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 And then literally three boxes below that for body paragraph one, body paragraph two, body That's paragraph exactly two. how I used to teach. But that's for, like, for like 13 students. and 14-year-old kids, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm coming to grips with this concept that I'm teaching students whose writing level is two-thirds their age, essentially. Mm. Yeah. And that's rather alarming. On the matter of Peel, and we might be going off into a tangent here, but that's fine. I've only actually seen Peel in the wild outside of Singapore once. I saw it once in a Reddit comment. I was like, oh my God, this is the first <laughs> time I've heard somebody who's not a teacher bring it up. Okay. Right? Or somebody who's not in a like the Singaporean educational context bring it up. It was actually, I believe it was mentioned alongside a book called The Pyramid Principle, which is a huge like book in consulting, actually. Oh. Yes. One of my project manager for my first project suggested that I read it. And it began with let me I have it here actually. Let me pull up this section. So it is about it's about business communication, actually. And it's written by Barbara Minto, who was the first female consultant at McKinsey. Oh. Uh, and now she runs her own communications consulting company, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just about helping people improve their business communications. And her argument is that, you know how business communications have this reputation for being like obtuse, right? So she gives this example. She gives this example of, okay, you get a message that says, John Collins telephoned to say that he can't make the meeting at 3 o'clock. Hal Johnson says he doesn't mind making it later or even tomorrow, but not before 10.30. And Don Clifford's secretary says that Clifford won't return from Frankfurt until tomorrow late. Right. The conference room is booked tomorrow, but free on Thursday. Thursday at 11 looks to be a good time. Is that okay for you? And I mean, this is a very simple, it's like, just like, logistical communication right? streams of information yeah and it's not even clear. like analysis which comes later yeah. which I haven't read and then wow. um, she pointed out that you could just write could we reschedule today's meeting to Thursday at 11 this would yeah. be more convenient for Collins and Johnson and will also permit Clifford to be present and then what she says is essentially give me a second where is that portion this made me feel personally attacked when I read it <laughs> So after that that first bunch, right, of just streams of information that are not synthesized. Mm-hmm. Raw ooh, streams of information, yeah. yeah. What the author has done here is what most people do when they write. He has used the writing process as a device to formulate his thinking. As a device, it works quite well, in fact. But the result is a bit hard on the reader who is forced to plow through several irrelevant sentences before he finds the point. Oh my God, that's how my students write. I was like, oh my God. Holy shit. I feel attacked. <laughs> But this is, yeah. holy shit, this is how amateur, you know, writers right? who don't outline or who don't, you know, pre-think what they're yes. They're writing stream of consciousness, stream of thought. The writing becomes the thinking, right? Yeah. And then only the 
very conscientious or the, the ones who are aware that this is not how writing should be. Like, it's not writing as communication. If your goal is to get the other person to understand something the way that you've thought about it, you actually yeah. have to take the additional step of... Of editing, essentially. Editing, yes, correct. And organizing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> so, I think what it was pointed out was like, like the pyramid principle actually is, is very simple. It's basically peel. Yeah. So, the idea behind it is that your information needs to be organized hierarchically. Right. And you have one main point... Below yeah. that main point, you will have three points. Each of those three points will have like maybe two or three like supporting pieces of evidence. And then that's why it's the pyramid principle, right? You end ah, but up that's with... that's for the body paragraph, right? For the introduction, right. it's the inverse pyramid. Yeah. You have to start general and then work your way to Work specifics. your way down, yeah, correct. Yeah. So the idea behind the pyramid principle is you have one key point and then mm. it's supported by a base of evidence. Yes. That's why. Yeah. And you get yeah. there by using peel, basically. Yeah. Right. And it's a great way of sort of structuring thought and organizing ideas. And this is why I taught it to my students because I know a lot of people at NIE, where apparently, according to Mr. Ken, mm-hmm. our shared secondary school English teacher, mm-hmm. right? The other place that teaches peel, but in a slightly different acronym, I can't remember what the acronym is, is Australia. T E E S, maybe. Ah, I've, I've okay. Heard, yes, 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 yes. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's what I heard at my okay. previous job. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it leads to very formulate sounding essays, but at least it leads to number one, essays that are readable. But number two, it also induces the student to think before they write. I think this is, now we're starting to get into a case of like, you know, learn the rules so you can break them. Right? Yeah, fair. Because yeah. the thing about Peel is that it's not the pinnacle of writing. It should be the baseline of writing. Yes. Right? Well, it's function and form, right? You need, you, yeah. you need to know your function before you can develop better form. Yeah, correct. So it's kind of like <laughs> you're at a point where you have to be able to do the Peel, right? And then if a student comes to you and says, I've written this thing, but I don't feel like it's like point, elaboration, example, and link. And a student comes to you and says, I feel like there is a more effective way to write this. Then that might be a student who has the potential to break out of that form, but not exactly. before. Right? Very, very much not before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, this past week, I graded compare and contrast, which requires an additional variation on that form, right? Because you have to, you know, provide a, essentially literally yes. a table where you yeah. have, okay, you know, one side, the other, well, not one side, but, you know, what you're comparing, mm-hmm. what you're contrasting against. Yeah. And so this is, yeah, it's sad that, I, you know, a lot of students are really underserved by not just the, the pre-university education, but also the university itself. And I'm being left to pick up the pieces of where all these students have been underserved. Yep. I'm just a grad student teaching (laughs) English to New Mexicans. Oh my God. Yeah, this is a case of, it feels like this is a pick your battles situation. I guess, but it's like, you know, and then I get students coming in saying, why are you grading me harshly for having bad grammar? Uh, Uh, (laughs) Because if the goal is communication, bad grammar impedes communication. Yeah, you're writing an essay. You know, of course I'm going to dog marks for bad grammar and bad spelling. I mean, bad spelling even less excusable, right? Literally, you're doing everything. You're not writing it, you know, on paper. You are doing Grammarly, everything on the computer. Which I don't use, but... Right. You have you are doing everything on the computer for which there is an auto spell check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh my God. So yeah, this is the situation, I think. I mean, my situation obviously is different from other grad student situations. But, mm-hmm. you know, by and large, I think a lot of us struggle with the fact that the baseline of the undergrads that we get is, I wouldn't even say variable, but not 
Well, actually, no. I had a conversation about this with my colleague yesterday and he's been in this program longer than I have. So he's taught more classes and he's taught a wider variety of classes. He says, because, you know, New Mexico's level of pre-university education is not the best. Mm -hmm. It's one of the least, most poorly funded educational states in the US, right? When we get students, they either tend to be bimodally distributed. Okay. So you have some that are super strong and some that are super weak. Or you have a relatively high mean but a super long tail. Interesting. Okay. What explains the bimodal distribution actually? Well, because you have some students that are just not ready. Okay. Right. So you have a, either, you know, the number of unprepared students is really, really, really high. So therefore you have two means, right? One where, yeah. the, one mean where the students are good, one mean where the students are bad. Two modes, but yes. Two modes, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am not a statistician. I should be, but anyway. Or you have a super long tail where you have this long, straggling tail of students who are underperforming. The, the long tail makes sense to me. The bimodal distribution makes a bit, because I, I guess it's kind of right. like, what, what, I've why never seen a bimodal yet. But maybe it depends on the course. Right, right. Because this grad student has taught things like ecology and evolution, microbiology, okay. uh, form and function. So, <laughs> I mean, the bimodal would make sense. In a situation like CS50, where there is a core group of students that comes in with prior experience and then there is a large group that ha- does not. Well, ecology and evolution is probably where you see something like this. Where right. you have some students who are the more science oriented who have clearly been taught evolution and then you have the ones coming from, let's say, more conservative corners and of the state. Everything is new. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, okay. Or, you know, you have existing conceptual barriers to overcome, yeah. shall we say, putting it very nicely. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think this is a good place to wrap up, actually. Yes. So, let's call it. This is Monkey Mind, episode 32. You can find the show notes for this at monkeymind.xyz slash 032. And we will see you next month. Yes, we will. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye.